Lord, we're grateful for today and we're grateful for this time when we can gather in your name to exalt your Son and find encouragement for our own souls. And even now, as we open your word together, uh, Lord, we would ask, uh, like the psalmist, that you would open our eyes so that we could behold wonderful things from your word. And so please do that now. Equip us, impress us with the greatness of Christ so that we might live for you, so that we might rest in your good and amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What we're going to do this morning during this time in our service is we are going to hear a divine word regarding the church. A divine word regarding the church. And if you're like me at all, and I think in this sense, most of you are like me, you will welcome a divine word about the church. Because, after all, there are so many things that are said and done by men and women in the name of the church that it can get a little bit overwhelming, if not, dare I say, nauseating. There's so much done in the name of the church, in the name of Christianity, that I welcome a word from God and Him saying, this is what the church is and this is what the church is supposed to look like. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3 so that we might hear a divine word about the church so that we can cut through the the fog, so to speak, and uh, just hear what God has to say about the church. The original setting uh, for 1 Timothy, just to remind you before we actually read the text, is Paul the Apostle is writing to Timothy the pastor. Timothy is pastoring a church in Ephesus, and as the pastor there, he needs a word from God, so to speak. He needs a divine word of instruction, and so Paul, the apostle, gives him the instruction. And I am pausing saying the apostle and underscoring that because that means it's a divine instruction because at the beginning of the letter, we read something like this, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, an apostle is one who speaks with the authority of another. An apostle is one who's been sent on behalf of another to speak authoritative words. And in this case, if it's from the Lord Jesus Christ, you could say 1 Timothy is a red letter letter because it's as if Jesus himself is saying it. He is now ascended and his emissary, his delegate, his authoritative delegate in this case is Paul the Apostle. So let's read these words so that we can learn and understand so that we might take them to heart ourselves. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. I hope to come to you soon, Paul says, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And so says... God regarding the church. 
And here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a closer look at those statements, and in particular, we're going to look at those three titles that are given for the church. Did you notice them? In verse 15, we see the household of God. There's a title for the church. Also in verse 15, the church of the living God. There's another title for the church. Also in verse 15 at the end, a pillar and buttress or pillar and support of the truth. That's another title given for the church. And we're going to look at those three descriptions of the church today. As a church, we're going to look at them. And we're going to look at them with the intent of sharpening our focus. We're going to look at them with the intent of being reminded about what a church is supposed to look like, what a church is supposed to be, what a church is supposed to do, so that we, by God's grace, might be a church. So that we might be a church another day, so that we might be a church that seeks to honor Christ, that, so that we might not, thinking of Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, walking among the churches so that we might not have our light snuffed out. Because the reality is, once a church, always a church, is a misnomer. Jesus Christ Himself blows the light out, if you will, on churches, if they're not really churches. And we don't want that to happen. And this is not an anniversary sermon per se, but as it is, this month, Omaha Bible Church is 20 years old. The church was planted some 20 years ago, and I'm thinking about what the church is supposed to be and do if God would see fit to allow us to be a church for 20 more years. And this is a great text to find ourselves sharpening our focus, being reminded. We've sought to be this, but being reminded today of what really we're all about. And I think this text will help us to keep perspective, to resharpen our perspective, and by the grace of God to actually be a church and not something else. So let's look at these three titles as we seek to have in this sharp, sharpened focus. Number one, the household of God. That's the first description we're going to look at. And we see it there in verse 15. The household of God describing the church. Now think with me, if you would, about what therefore the church is not. If the church is the household of God, which is a pretty big deal. It's such a big deal. I wish I had a British accent or something or a Scottish accent. So I could say it in, in some more profound-sounding way. Uh, instead, I don't have an accent. Or worse yet, I have a Nebraska accent. I don't know. <laughs> but to say, the household of none other than God. We say it so many times, and we, we think it so many times, and it doesn't really carry that significance, but it really should. We're talking about the church being the household of God. <laughs> Maybe. But if that's true, then, then, then what isn't the church? Well, the, the, the church isn't a, a, a mere social organization. The, the, the church isn't a, a, a mere club. The church is not a mere humanitarian organization or a mere charitable group. Maybe if I could push it a little bit to maybe, maybe help us in, in, our lack, in, our, in our comfort and to be a little less comfortable, the church isn't merely a Bible study. There's something with a serious amount of gravitas, of, uh, of profound uh, profundity, better yet, 
We're talking about the household of God is how the church is described. And it's meant to strike us. The word church means assembly. But here we have, it's the assembly of of God, the household of God. There's something extraordinary beyond other good things like Bible studies. The household of God. When you read through 1 Timothy, it's interesting to note there are definitely degrees of formality to this. Timothy's pastoring a local church, not altogether different from this one, in a place called Ephesus. And he is supposed to learn how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. But in that book, you definitely see a degree of formality. You see church officials. You see accountability. You see structure. So there's something about the church in its formal gathering. You can't get away from that in 1 Timothy. In its formal gathering that is called none other than the household of God. It's meant to be a big deal. It's meant to be a big deal. In the words of respected New Testament scholar George Knight, the church is depicted here as, how about this, the place where the living God dwells with His people. I don't know about you, but that's enough to make me a little bit nervous. The church, as the household of God, is the place where the living God dwells. That makes people like us a little bit nervous. Because we know that the Bible teaches that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we know the Bible teaches that this, uh, there's definitely a strong emphasis on the individual. The individual is regenerated by the Spirit. The individual is indwelt by the Spirit. And when we forget the individual side of things, we get ourselves in trouble. But sometimes we go too far and we forget that there is this significant corporate gathering-ness, if you will, to the degree where the Bible goes on record as saying it is the household of none other than God. Amazing. So yes, individual, spirit indwells us. But let's not, let's not swing so far as to forget the Bible also speaks in terms of the church being the dwelling place of God. There is a sense in which there is something more that happens when the church is gathered. I'm going to say in its formal gathering in light of 1 Timothy. There is something extraordinary. There is something unique. There is something distinct that is not just the same as we're a bunch of individual Christians indwelt by the Spirit of God. The Bible speaks in those terms, but it also speaks in these terms. And we as a church need to know that this is not just a Bible study. If this is the church gathered, then this is the household of none other than God Himself. Wow. That's what I say. I don't mean the building. Paul doesn't mean the building. They probably didn't have a building. But he doesn't mean the church merely universal because he's talking about the local church at Ephesus. And he calls it the household of God. I think we're to to find this impressive and a big deal. 
And by the way, just to emphasize the building thing, I, I don't think this is God's house. If this is God's house, he needs to get a second job. Um, <laughs> I mean, they didn't even make the wall straight when they built this building. Uh, <laughs> this is a low-end building. You know, when they built, you know how architects like to put their sign out front? They didn't want to put a sign out front here. <laughs> they did a great job designing what we wanted and what we could afford, but there was no rush to put their sign out there. Okay? This is not God's house. Okay? So when, when your kids are running, don't say, walk, don't you know, little Sally, this is God's house? That's bad theology, okay? Um, <laughs> okay? But when the church, made up of individual believers, yes, when the church gathers like this, when the church is together, what Paul is talking to Timothy about in First Timothy, we do have the household of God the dwelling, the unique dwelling place of God. It's interesting. A couple of weeks ago, we had occasion to read Matthew 18. And in Matthew 18, it's talking about church discipline and accountability. But, it, but it's pretty interesting in that text. If you read it in its context, it says, where two or three are gathered, there I am in your midst. I would be careful about using that passage flippantly. It is in the context of church discipline, but it's in the context of the church. You've told it to the church. There's this church formality, and you're making these hard decisions, but you know what? God is omnipresent. God is always uh, indwelling us as His Spirit, but there's something extraordinary being emphasized, and He's saying, I'm there with you. There's something unique and special, and we as a church can't forget that. We dare not forget that. That's why I even think in terms of, you know, right now I'm not just teaching the Bible. I am teaching the Bible. I hope it's not less than that, but I hope I'm also doing more than that. I hope I am preaching God's Word. I'm officially proclaiming the Word of God to the people of God because there is something extraordinary and unique that's different than just a Bible study. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of the church being the, the household of God, I'm comforted and I'm disturbed. I mean, if this is really true, this is the household of God, and God dwells uniquely with us when we're together, I say, this is awesome. Because what happens in a household? What happens in a household is, is you're not alone, what happens in a household is, is the father takes care of his children. What happens in a household is you're safe. What happens in a household are all these great things, these unique things that don't happen outside of the household. In a household is where you belong. And there's just something tremendous and encouraging about being in your home and feeling at home and going, oh, I know I'm safe, I know I'm cared for. Then there's the other side that makes me uncomfortable and makes me nervous. If the church is the household of God, it means I'm not alone. <laughs> and sometimes I would prefer to be alone, especially when I want to do what I want to do, which is contrary to what God has to say. When I sin, I want to be alone. And so I get troubled by thinking the church is the household of God. That's very troubling. If God uniquely dwells among us, then I'm a little bit nervous and troubled. 
Another thing that causes me to be a bit nervous is to consider the fact that if the church is the household of God, which it is, that means it's not ours. And I realize I'm a broken record. I talk about this a lot. How many of you know what a record is? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They're making a comeback anyway. I want the vinyl, man. I talk about this a lot because it's a big deal to me. And I know Omaha Bible Church is not a perfect church and we have our fair share of issues and problems and struggles. But this is one thing that I try to talk about a lot because I think about it a lot. If this is the household of God, that means it's not ours. It's His. Which causes us to then be more careful. Oh, please don't misunderstand. It's ours. And I want to say Omaha Bible Church is my church in the sense that I belong and I contribute and I play a role and I feel responsible. And I want you to say Omaha Bible Church is my church. But there's another sense in which I don't want you to say that. I want you to remember that if it's the household of God, almighty, sovereign, it ain't yours. (laughs) Because when we get too comfortable because this is my house, I do what? I do what I want to do. I had occasion last week, all joking aside, I had a nice time in Indianapolis. Um, I said earlier, I don't like Indiana, but um, anyway, I, I had a good time. Stayed with some friends. We were there for a, a competition, and then uh, I preached at a church uh, in, outside of Indy. Uh, a friend of mine, Kirby Myers, Kirby and Sally, just dear friends. They've been here before, and we're working on our doctorates together. And just great, just a great time. And Jonathan and I stayed in their home, and it was nice. So many times I'm going to speak somewhere and stay in a hotel. That's nice, too, because you can be alone. But anyway, they opened our home, their home up to us, and you know how it is. Sometimes you don't feel very at home in someone's home. You wish you were in the hotel. But there are other times when there's real hospitality, and you can kind of just enjoy it. It was one of those kinds of times. We stayed there three nights and just had a great time. But it wasn't my house. And so I didn't act like I do in my house. Don't tell my wife, but I made the bed every day. (laughs) And I don't think I've ever made the bed ever, ever at our house. Maybe when people were coming over for some crazy reason and they had to see our bedroom, I don't know. Why do you make the bed anyway? It doesn't make any sense anyway. (laughs) You know, and, and... And after the shower, I took the bottle of stuff they had in there and squirted it so it didn't streak, and then I wiped it down, and I wasn't myself. (laughs) Not a perfect illustration, but to illustrate the point, I was comfortable, but I wasn't altogether comfortable because it wasn't mine to do with as I saw fit, and I wanted to be a good guest. Well, not a perfect illustration, but we do need to remember, Omaha Bible Church is our church, yes. But Omaha Bible Church is not our church, if we're really a church. I remind you what I remind you of so many times. Acts chapter 20, Christ bought the church with his own blood. It belongs to him. I remind you what I remind you of all the time. Acts chapter, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is the one who said, I will build my church. We don't even want to build the church. We just want to be used by Him because He's promised to build it. And so, good opportunity today for me to remind you of the title that is given to the church, one of them. The household of God. 
Ah, comfort, safety, needs met. Scary. It's where we meet God in a unique and extraordinary way. And that makes me nervous. And I hope it makes you nervous in a good sense. I hope you want to come to corporate gathering. I hope you want to be part of the church, formalized, coming together. And there's a desire to be there and to hear God's great forgiving uh, word, power of His great forgiveness from His word. And, and I hope there's also something that causes you to say, this is kind of scary. And when you make decisions because you're helping to lead in a certain area or something like that, you say, this is kind of scary. Okay? All right, let's move on. Let's go on now to number two, a second title that's given, and that is the Church of the Living God. The Church of the Living God. Verse 15 goes on to say, which is the Church of the Living God. And I want to ask you to think in terms of what the opposite statement would be. If we're talking about the church, and the church is the church of the living God, what would the opposite be? Come on, I know most of us went to public schools, but you guys know. The dead God, God. yeah. The opposite would be, this is the church of the dead God. And that's problematic, right? That's problematic. But one thing it would do is it would free us up to have a free-for-all. It would free, if, if God is dead and, and we just created him in our own image according to our own likeness and he's just an idol like all the other gods out there, you know what? We should do whatever we want. But if he's the living God, there are implications. You're already thinking of them. Of them. I know you are. He's the living God. And you might be saying to yourself, in fact, turn, turn with me to Jeremiah 10. Jeremiah 10 is a great, great, Um, illustration of this because he's borrowing from the Old Testament when he says the living God because this is repeated uh, several times in the Old Testament as a way of distinguishing the one true God from all the other false gods and if you don't know where Jeremiah is find Psalms in the middle of your Bible repent of not reading your Bible first Um, (laughs) if you're a new Christian you don't need to repent yet but you need to learn what the books of the Bible are it's kind of helpful anyway Psalms then work your way to the right, and you're going to see some bigger psalms, Proverbs, and then you're going to see some small books, Isaiah, then Jeremiah. If you get to Ezekiel, you went too far. So Jeremiah chapter 10, I'm going to give you a little bit longer to find it. Uh, did I say Jeremiah 10? All right. You might be thinking, though, Church of the Living God, this is kind of like, tell me something I don't know. I mean, because who would ever go to the Church of the Dead God? Please don't put your hand up. Lots of people. You say, who would ever worship a dead God? Who would ever worship an idol? That, that's, that's counterintuitive. That's ridiculous. That's stupid. To quote a biblical word because he's going to use it in Jeremiah. And the answer is, as many of you know, lots of people. Tons of people. Hundreds of thousands of millions of people go to the church of the dead God or the religion of the dead God. And as a matter of fact, you, you get into Jeremiah 10 yet? Come on. All right, as a matter of fact, most of you are there now. Romans chapter 1 would inform us and tell us that because of our sin, wait, wait, rewind, that we all worship, we're created to be worshipers, 
But because of sin, there's perversion that takes place in our hearts, perversion that takes place in our thinking. And yeah, we're worshipers, all right, and we worship false, dead idols. We worship false gods. And so it's not crazy or unthinkable to think that some people might go to the church of the dead God because, in fact, that's our our natural tendency after becoming perverted in our minds with sin. So all of that to say, we're going to rejoice today that we, if we're really part of a real church, we're talking about the church of the living God over and against as opposed to all of the dead gods that we would otherwise naturally be drawn toward if it weren't for the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of His Spirit. Now, I want you to go to Jeremiah chapter 10 because there's nothing quite like it as far as showing the contrast between the one true living God and all of the many dead gods. I love this text, and it really helps us to understand this a little bit. And you can look for our phrase, the living God, or our title. But we'll look at verses 1 to 16. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nail so that it cannot move, which is altogether ridiculous, as he's going to say, because it can't move anyway. But anyway, verse 5, their idols are like scarecrows in the cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you. Here's the contrast. Oh, Lord, in verse 6, you are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? You're above all of that. For this is your due, for among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, I love this, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is, here we go, the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom and by His understanding stretched out the heavens. When He utters His voice, notice He talks, not like the other ones, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens and He makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning from the, for the rain and He brings forth the wind from His storehouses. Every man is stupid. That's my life verse. <laughs> no, it's not right. In the context of all these idol worshipers, right? Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. Isn't that ironic? 
for his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. For he is the one who formed all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of warfare, the the Lord of victory is his name. Take a breath. It's unmistakable what he's saying. He is unique. He is different. He's not like these ones we've made ourselves that we're so good at making. He's the one and only peerless God who is alive. How about that? Using his formal Old Testament name, I'll put it in these terms, Yahweh, the one who is the great I Am. That's what his name is. He's the self-existent, eternal, one true living God, and he has no peers. He's unlike in every shape and form and way all of the idols of the church of the dead gods. He's totally different. First Timothy chapter 1, as a matter of fact, refers to him as the only God. So we see the contrast. We understand its meaning. What's the, what are the implications? That's my question for you. So if we have the church is not only the household of God, but it's the church of the living God, different from every other religion then and therefore. If, he's the, if it's the church of the living God, implication would be, I just wrote down too. Our conduct will be different. Right? Paul says, I wrote to you so that you know how to conduct yourself. Or the ESV says, how to behave. Because if we're talking about the church of the living God, then I want to pay attention to how I act in His church. Right? Make sense? But, but, but if he's just a figment of our imaginations and we created him to somehow control people or to somehow get prosperity or whatever it might be, maybe to feel good about ourselves because everybody needs a little religion, then I want to do whatever I want to do. Conduct schmonduct. Right? And by the way, when we do whatever we want to do in the church... We act like idolaters. Make sense? When we say, well, I know that that's what God says about the church, but we're going to do it this way. We are a bunch of dead God worshipers. Because the God who is alive is a God who is to be reckoned with. He cares. He's involved. Huge implications. When Omaha Bible Church says, this is how we're going to do it, we don't care what the Bible says, maybe it's not that flagrant, but that's what we in effect do, or you do it as an individual Christian, however it looks, but in this case it's talking about the church, then you just, you're, you're like the guy that goes out and chops a tree down and whittles a little face and paints it and puts it in a little robe or something and bows down and worships it. It's the same kind of thing. We don't want to be like that. We don't want to be like that. Another implication would be, if we're talking about the church of the living God, 
I love this one. This is more positive. We're not wasting our time. This one is close to my heart. If this is the church of the living God, what we do when we do ministry, when we gather, when we sing, when we preach, when we listen, when we give, when we serve, when we do outreach, when we do one another's, when we do all of these things that have a cost, we can know that we're not wasting our time. And I have this big fear that if we're just doing religion, and we're just doing this as some sort of club and some kind of thing because that's what our parents did or whatever, and this is what I like, and it strokes my ego, or I don't know what. This is just one big, fat exercise in time-wasting. And we, of all people, are to be pitied, to borrow from what Paul says. But if it's the church of the living God, time isn't wasted. Time isn't wasted. Ready to move on? I love this stuff. I don't know about you. We'll see you next week. If you're here, maybe you love it too. If not, maybe it was construction. <laughs> what is the church? What's it supposed to look like? How are we supposed to act? Why? The church of the God who is not an idol. The church of the living God. Let's move on. Let's move on now to number three. Another title for us to, to resharpen our focus would be the pillar and buttress of the truth. We'll talk about the meaning and we'll talk about the implication. Verse 15 ends with a pillar and buttress of the truth. And I don't think I've ever said the word buttress out loud until today. I learned the Bible reading the New American Standard Translation and so I learned pillar and support. So pardon me if I say pillar and support and you have an ESV and it says pillar and buttress. You can see that the ESV's, uh, you can see that it is uh, multicultural as far as translation committee. It's very British. Um, or at least somewhere for that, for, for across the pond. Uh, they would say buttress. <laughs> Maybe it would sound better if I said that instead of buttress. Um, it's the pillar and the buttress. <laughs> Sounds better, I don't know. Um, and now that I'm off on my notes and on a tangent, um, I can't wait to preach in England again with an English standard version. Uh, the last time I was in England, I was preaching from the new American standard version of the Bible. Uh, I, I'm sure by now they fired the marketing guy at, at the Lockman Foundation, the new American standard version. Yeah, try being an international um, Bible teacher with that one. So, NIV, New International Version. Man, that guy should get a bonus. Uh, English Standard Version, bonus. You know, you can go to other, you can go to India and they're okay with that because it's not your American Bible. Um, anyway, I'm just venting right now. Uh, I, was, I was preaching at a church in, in, uh, in London and I had a New American Standard Bible. What was I thinking? I don't know. And, and I'm preaching and, and they had a teleprompter right here. And uh, nobody else had it, but there was a teleprompter there with the Bible verses on it, and it had NIV. It was awesome. Uh, it was a little hard to splice it all together, but as I was preaching, I would be preaching, and then I could look at the NIV and do this little thing with one eye, and I could give the NIV because that's what the people there had. Uh, afterward, uh, Eric Raymond was with me. He goes, man, do you have the NIV memorized or what? 
I'm like, no, but I'm the president. I have a teleprompter. I, anyway. <laughs> Why did I just tell you all that? I have no idea. Um, we are called, if we're a church, to be the pillar and the buttress, the pillar and support of the truth. And the idea is simple to catch. The pillar is that which lifts up the truth. Okay? We're going to see in this context, he's talking about the truth of the gospel. Remember, Jesus said, I am the truth, if you want to go to a different text. But he's going to unpack the gospel in a second, gospel truth. So what we do is we hold the gospel high for people to admire it, for people to see it, okay? just like a pillar holds the roof up high. But then the other side of, the buttress side, the support side, is to hold the structure in place. It is actually a very British idea to have a buttress. And what that does is it provides stability. But he seems to be getting at this idea. The positive is we hold forth the word of life, as Peter would say. We give the positive gospel. But at the same time, we also have a sword in our hand because we're defending it. Like a buttress holds things Stably, Because if you don't have that stabilization, then you don't really have anything to offer because its stability is threatened. And so keep that in mind. That's what we want to do and be as a church. We want to be a church that holds forth the truth like a pillar holds the roof high, and we're going to give the gospel. But at the same time, we cannot do that without also saying we've got to be on the defense. We've got to guard, we've got to protect, and all these terms are used in First and Second Timothy. So it's a misnomer, it sounds wonderful, but it's a misnomer and naive to say Omaha Bible Church is not a church that's against things, it's a church that's for things. Now you can take that too far because I know of churches that seem to butter their bread and build their whole backbone and foundation on being against things. But what we need to be is so for the truth about the gospel and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when it's threatened, you know what? Those are fighting words. Because we're called to be the pillar and the support of the truth. I so believe in the deity of Christ that anyone who wants to try to undermine it, I want to battle with. I so believe in the humanity of Jesus that anybody who wants to meddle with it, I'm ready to do battle with or whether it be his bodily resurrection, his substitutionary atonement, his ascension, his virgin birth, and the list could go on, his return. We're so for these things, we also, by consequence, end up being against those who oppose them. And if we're going to be a biblical church, if we're going to keep the light on, so to speak, and not be snuffed out, we need to make sure that we know that one of the ways a church is described as the pillar, the promoter, the positive, good news, and the defense. Bad news for you if you try to be a false teacher and meddle with it. Make sense? I think it makes pretty, pretty straightforward sense. And, and for me, these are just heartfelt, core of my being kinds of passions. And so I know if you've been around Omaha Bible Church very often, you've heard these things, you know these things, but it's good to resharpen our focus regarding these things. Historically, I found it kind of interesting um, Something about the architecture in Ephesus. This is a uh, this is from John Stott's helpful commentary on First Timothy. John Stott went to heaven the other day. If you didn't know that. Anyway, listen to this. The inhabitants of Ephesus, this is first century, had a vivid illustration of this in their temple of Diana or Artemis. 
regarded as one of the seven wonders of the world. It boasted 100 iconic columns, each over 18 meters high, which together lifted its massive shining marble roof. Then by way of application, Stott says, just so the church holds the truth aloft so that it is seen. May have been what Paul had in mind, those who knew it well who were in Ephesus. I like what Stott went on to say pastorally. Indeed, as pillars lift a building high while remaining themselves unseen, so the church's function is not to advertise itself, but to advertise and display the truth. And I like that part. Well, with those, with the, with the title in mind, well, we can't be done yet. Because then he goes on to give us, sampling is not the right word, to give us an abbreviated, condensed version or explanation of what he means by the truth that we promote and the truth that we defend as a church, like Omaha Bible Church. And what he ends up giving is he gives this confession or this creed or this hymn, something that probably first century Christians memorized, sang, repeated, or something like that. And it's very simple, and yet when you take the time to see it, it's very, very rich and uh, pretty profound. And, and so let's go ahead and read this. In, in light of what he said, we're supposed to be, then he, he gives a rehearsal, if you will, of gospel high points. He says in verse 16, Great indeed, in our flow of context, therefore worth promoting, therefore worth defending, great Indeed, we confess. The idea, the idea there is we, Christians, we confess this. He means we agree to this. We all agree to this. Uh, not only do we agree to this, we, we, we say this. This is a great truth and we confess it. It's beyond all question among Christians. Is the mystery of godliness. And he's going to talk about what's been seen and known in Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh. The idea there even being of being made known in the flesh. Even, even assuming that He didn't come into existence by coming into the flesh. He was made known in the flesh. There's room there for the eternality of the Son of God, but He was manifested. He was made known in the flesh. The idea is, is incarnation, the incarnation of Jesus, which we have to have if we're going to have reconciliation, a la Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. So we've got a confession of the incarnation as vital gospel truth. Then go on and, and see that He says, vindicated by the Spirit. At first, that, that one's a little... Tougher, you say, vindicated by the Spirit. What is this vindicated? Think in these terms with Jesus. During His earthly ministry, He would say things that would indicate He believed He was the Son of God. He would also say things like, destroy this temple and in three days what? I will raise it up. He claimed to be the eternal one. He claimed to be the great I am. And if he then died and rotted in the grave, there would be no vindication. 
he was just another in a long line of false prophets. But having been raised from the dead, Allah, Romans chapter 1, verse 4, by the power of the Spirit, also Romans chapter 8, vindicated by the Spirit, no doubt, is a reference to His resurrection. It was the Spirit of God who raised Him from the dead. Again, Romans chapter 1, verse 4. And He was vindicated. He wasn't just a false prophet. What He claimed to be true was shown and proven to be true at the resurrection. So we not only have incarnation, we also have resurrection. Then He says, seen by angels. That's curious because in another another place, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uh, provides eyewitness testimony by human beings, hundreds of them. So this wasn't just phantom Jesus that didn't really raise from the dead. There were hundreds of eyewitnesses. Paul chooses not to go down that road here. He goes down the road of angelic beings saw him. This wasn't the figment of Mary's imagination or Peter's imagination. They saw him too, but not only did human beings see him, angels saw him. That seems to be the idea here. Then we, we move on. Proclaimed among the nations. Among the nations, it's, that, there's an emphasis of universal Savior. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. Proclaimed among the nations. It underscores his greatness, his sufficiency. It also underscores the fact that Jesus demanded that this happen when he's gone and he promised that it would happen when he's gone. And and, and you know what? It happened. Believed on in the world. Now we have the response and God-given means by which the gospel is applied. Believed on in the world. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. They're, They're believing. Now, the work of Christ is applied to people just as God would have intended. And then finally he says, taken up in glory. No doubt a reference, I think, to the ascension spoken of in Acts chapter 1. But not just the ascension. He says, taken up in glory. Emphasizing his exaltation. Maybe the longer version we could cross-reference to is Philippians chapter 2. Crowned. There's a lot there. There's some pretty, if you want to be fancy, that, that, that is filled with some pretty hefty Christology. There's a lot of gospel truth in that hymn or that confession or that creed. That's what he's talking about, though, when he's talking about the church is the pillar of this truth about Christ and its multidimensionality. The church is also the buttress that will defend these core doctrines apart from which you don't have the gospel, apart from which you don't have the truth. And so he gives this great reminder to Timothy and we end up having a great reminder ourselves as well. Implications? The implications for this would be for for us as a church, let's start with leaders. Let's say it's no wonder one of the qualifications for a leader is to know sound doctrine, to be able to teach sound doctrine, rather, and to be able to refute those who contradict sound doctrine. It just fits this. And that also fits with the rest of us. Why is the elder pastor overseer going to teach sound doctrine 
and refute those who contradict sound doctrine so the rest of us can be equipped so that we can do it too because we are part of the church and what are we going to do as a church? One of the things we're going to do is we're going to act like a church and that means we're going to be promoting gospel truth and defending gospel truth. Implication is we would know what the truth is. I want to give my life to making sure I know what the truth is and know what the truth is even better. I'm not one of those guys that went to seminary and didn't buy a single book. They only checked the books out from the library. I'm the guy that bought all the books and then ten times more. I'm the guy that studies more now than I did then because I figure I know even less now. Because you know how it goes. The more you know, the more you know you know you don't know. I just want to understand better. I want to understand the greatness of the love of God in Christ Jesus. I want to know this stuff so that I can actually be helpful in helping you know it so that we can not only promote it, so that we can defend it. I'm more motivated than I've ever been in my life. Oh, God, give us 20 more years to do a better job knowing, promoting, defending. And I'm not the only one. I know the other leaders pastors, elders, overseers at Omaha Bible Church feel the same way. And I know many of you feel the same way. I got to go deeper on this stuff. I got to know this stuff. I find myself really drawn to, to history more and more, especially in light of Ecclesiastes 1, that there's nothing new under the sun. Where have people crashed and burned and have their light snuffed out by Christ because they're no longer a church? There's a lot to be learned. It can be kind of depressing. There's a lot to be learned. I want us to be a church for another day, not to mention another decade, not to mention maybe even longer. And I know you feel the same way. Many of you do. Most of you do. We need to resharpen our focus again and again and again. In ending, and this isn't the only way we're going to do this, but I, I, this is a good Sunday for me to make this announcement and let you know, and this is my way of landing the plane now. pilot once told me a good landing is when you walk away. <laughs> so uh, I'll try to walk away from the sermon soon. And you'll praise God for it. Um, <laughs> one thing we are going to do in, in, in the year ahead, um, just looking over the last 20 years and praising God for things that have been done that have been good and, and, and positive and promoting the gospel in light of God being alive and this being God's household. Uh, there's been a lot of things we haven't done right. A lot of things God has allowed us to do right. I'm thankful. One thing I think we could do better, and it's pretty obvious, is we could have a better statement of faith. We could have a better confession, a better uh, statement that put, you can put in people's hands and say, here are the basics of what we believe. Okay? We believe the Bible is all true. It's our ultimate authority. But if I go to a church, I want to know, show me the doctrinal statement. I want to know where you are on these key areas of theology. and um, I don't think it's uh, even debatable that the one we have is, is not so good. It's served its purpose. It's been helpful. But when you look at it, even from an English standpoint, it, it, has, it doesn't read very well. Um, it's, it's had its grammatical errors. Um, and we need to maybe be a little bit more careful when we put that out there and say, this is our confession. This is our statement of faith. We're sure careful about being the pillar in support of the truth. Sorry for the grammar. Um, 
And we've had occasion at times, and remember we inherited the doctrinal statement 20 years ago when this church was planted. We've had occasion where we have had to change things because they were worded in such a way, the well-intended represented a very, very different theology even other than Protestant theology. There have been times where we've needed to shore things up. And so over the last year, we've been working to come up with something that is simple. We don't, in many words, there are many problems. <laughs> something simple, but well done, well worded, paying attention to how Christians before us have said things, trying not to be cavalier and uh, novel, paying attention to the Bible, first and foremost, yes, with a view toward maybe it's something that would last for the next 20 years, if not longer, with a view toward maybe it's something we could use even as a teaching tool and sit down and say, let's, if we want to learn basic systematic theology, we could actually use this one instead of kind of being embarrassed by it. And so I'm thrilled to, to actually say, all right, we have a perfect statement. No, because only God's word is perfect. Um, the end-all statement, no, because history has got some really helpful, verbose uh, statements that believers have put together. But I'm excited to have one that's simple, theologically informed, historically informed, biblically grounded. I think it will serve us well. So you can pick up a copy today if you'd like. Um, the intent was not to change any theological position. And so if you read, read carefully and read side by side, you'll say, you know what, the church is where it was. But they may have worded things a little bit differently, um, added different passages to prove the point. And then what we're going to do, again, out of a burden to do a better job being the pillar and support of the truth and having everyone equipped to be this and do this, uh, for the Sunday night series this year, um, we're going to do something called the Doctrines of the Church. And uh, we're actually going to work our way through that statement of, or, or confession, whichever one you would like, and develop it and unpack it and maybe even talk, for sure talk, about why things are said a certain way and not another way, and it should be a good study of, of theology for us on Sunday nights. And, and I'm excited about that, and I think it might set us up well by the grace of God to do a better job um, being the church. So that's the plan. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for today, and thank you for the Lord Jesus who bought the church with his own blood. Help us to be careful with how we handle ourselves. Lord, may we be reminded specifically today that you are the God who is alive and you're not an idol. You're not tame. Help us to be reminded today that the church belongs to you and you uniquely dwell in the church. And, and we're so glad about that. And thank you for the fact that you've called us to be the pillar and support of the truth. We want to be that. We want to be that in this community. We want to be that to the degree that you give us opportunity in the world. And we want to do so for the glory and honor and exaltation of the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, in whose name we pray. Amen.